Gentlemen, and welcome. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Politics, Politics, Politics podcast. My name is Justin Robert Young. That up top was, of course, the Latino heartthrob, Ricky Martin, featuring Mayor Pete. Uh, uh, this was a, a clip that went viral yesterday that made me laugh, mostly because it echoes one of my favorite moments of the 2016 campaign. Let's play the old clip first. This is Jeb Bush trying to get the crowd going. I think the next president needs to be a lot quieter, but send a signal that we're prepared to act in the national security interests of this country to get back in the business of creating a more peaceful world. Please clap. And here is Mayor Pete yesterday, you know, just like Jeb, searching for that applause line, doesn't quite hit it, so he's got to shake the tree for them claps. By having better hands guided by better values on those pulleys and levers of American government. So can I look to you to spread that sense of hope to those that you know? Come on. <laughs> of course, we get the little bonus Krusty the Clown laugh after there, too, which I did not know was part of Mayor Pete's repertoire. And yet, here we are. All right, we got a great uh, show here for you today. We're going to talk about Bernie versus Hillary. Yeah, we're back. And we're going to talk about the new debate qualifications for the February debate that will take place before the New Hampshire primary. More specifically, we're going to talk about how the new way that you can qualify to get on that stage is kind of BS. But first... I have an admission to make. I might come off on this show as a bit strident. I might come off both on this show and in real life as maybe a little full of myself, a little self-confident, maybe to the point of arrogance. But in truth, dear listeners, I am a self-reflexive man. I am somebody that constantly thinks about where my thought process is. Indeed, I, I believe it is the best quality of any journalists, uh, to, to specifically always guess the narratives that you are building in your own head as faulty. Interrogate them. Make sure that they stand up to reason. And so it hit me like a ton of bricks this morning. Is Joe Biden in 2020 my Trump of 2016? And by that I mean somebody that is very clearly leading the national race. If he were anybody but Joe Biden, I would almost certainly think that they were at least like a 50-50 shot to win the nomination. But instead, I just assume that his disintegration is fait accompli, that it's going to happen 
at any moment. More to that point, am I so focused on the non-traditional candidates and being ahead of the curve that I'm not seeing what is very clear in front of my face? And so that's how I would like to begin this episode. I would like to begin this episode by wondering aloud, am I wrong on Biden? Is Joe my blind spot? So let's make the case for that. Joe Biden almost certainly, in my mind, would have won the nomination in 2016 and had a very good shot at winning the presidency in 2016. Is this controversial? I don't think this is very controversial. I think if the vice president would have run, then there would have been pressure on Obama to make a call, or at least Obama would have been asked about it. Obama would have been asked about well, what do you think about Joe Biden? What was Joe Biden's role? Like, how did Biden help? I think that the Washington press, specifically those that cover Congress, would probably have given him a really kind of glowing treatment. Now, the New York press would obviously be far more beholden to New- to Hillary, but those who covered the actual workings of government, the Washington press, they would know the fact that Obama really didn't do a whole lot of heavy lifting in Congress. The only person who ever really put his hands in the dirt and tried to get stuff done was Joe Biden, largely because that was his domain. Now, knowing that Hillary fades in 2016, that she is not a particularly strong primary candidate to the point where she gets challenged by Bernie and makes Bernie a star and that she eventually loses to a reality show host, I think, in my mind, you know, Joe Biden would have been that dude. Of course, he was talked out of running by Obama. That's a different story. But let's leave that there. I believe that to be true. So let's look at where we are in 2020. We are at a point now where Joe Biden's record is basically what he wants it to be if he can survive the primary. So right now, Bernie Sanders is currently hitting Joe Biden on the idea of Social Security. And this is Joe Biden's greatest strength and greatest weakness, is that he has a tremendous record in Congress. His greatest weakness is he has a tremendous record in Congress. So you got a lot of sound of him on the Senate floor talking about how he wants to make a deal with the Republicans and he's willing to suspend Social Security. Because Joe Biden is a bipartisan dealmaker. This is something that he is running on. So he's got to dance around a little bit in the primary, but he's always going to be able to be on the right side for his constituents, at the very least, of some of the programs that Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren are pushing that more conservative Democrats might find to be the bit a bit extreme. If he can break out of that orbit, if he can get the nomination, at that point, everything that he's done basically just becomes experience. The thing that Trump would hit him on is corruption. And, and he would use the Ukraine as the launching point of it. But still, that's a huge advantage. I've been there, done that, in a world where... Folks are scared because 
there is somebody in the White House that does not have that experience. He can get up and say, look, I can do this. You know I can do this. I know everybody in Washington. I know how all the level levers work. I can turn all the dials. All right, point number two. Like Trump, Biden's poll numbers nationally just don't fall. Despite the fact that all the cool kids like me are betting that it will. Oh, we're sitting there in the corner wearing sunglasses indoors. Maybe one of us is wearing a hat inside out like a rally cap. You know, we're just menacingly wrapping our slap bracelets around our wrists. Uh, one or more of us are wearing Jinkos. We're so cool. Oh, us cool kid pundits. And all we're doing is snickering about the time that Joe Biden's poll numbers are going to crater. Remember the 80s campaign, man. Remember clean and nice, man. <laughs> well, I felt very secure in that until I remembered that this is a lot of the same stuff that I was saying about Trump. I remember literally being in Des Moines, Iowa, talking to a friend of mine, saying, well, you know, if Trump loses here, then he's probably out of the race by South Carolina. This is about the point where this Trump train comes off the track. Eventually, it's going to come to an end. Spoiler alert, it didn't. And if I hadn't been so cool and looked at the actual fundamental bedrock numbers, then maybe I would have realized that. Point the third. Biden post-Obama is simply a different Biden. For all the cases that I cite about how Joe Biden is simply bad at running for president, all the examples happen before he is touched by a Democratic angel. Lo, he came not from a ti the tiny town of Bethlehem, but from the windy city of Chicago. Obama touched the journeyman Biden, and now he was no longer the accumulation of hapless folly, but rather the new stalwart. All of his time toiling now adds up to respectable leadership. Post-Obama, Biden is a complete candidate in the way that Senate barnacle Biden simply isn't. And part of that is also the fact that he inherited the black vote. Nobody touches Biden with the black vote, the older black vote. At all. That's something that when you have that in your back pocket in the Democratic primary certainly helps. To that point, our fourth. Biden's coalition of primary voters are simply more reliable than the other candidates. Sure, Bernie can flex on the fact that he's got youth vote out the wazoo. Well, guess what? Older voters vote. Younger voters sometimes get distracted. 
Younger voters have Siesta Key to catch up on. Younger voters have to make sure that they uh, 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 appropriately plan their DMT detox while binging on Chapo's Trap House so it does not coincide with a primary or a general election. You want to know what older voters have to do? Nothing. They got to get out and vote. And every single piece of media that they are consuming is reminding them exactly why. Besides the fact that it's simply more real to them, damn it. When you're talking about Social Security and what you're relying on, this is simply something that will animate you to the polls more than the idea that we need to fundamentally change our society. And here's my final point for why I might have a blind spot for Biden. If Joe is second in Iowa, first in New Hampshire, second in Nevada, and win South Carolina, this is his nomination. He would have to totally crash and burn on Super Tuesday for it not to be. He is going to be coalesced around by the media and by the establishment, and at that point, the the knife will fall for Bernie Sanders. It will be the handwriting on the wall for Elizabeth Warren. Amy Klobuchar won't survive to see South Carolina. And these are realistic. These are very realistic outcomes. I think that they are as realistic as what my preferred outcomes are or what my my suspected outcomes are that he finishes in third or fourth in Iowa, in New Hampshire. In He finished second in Nevada and then first in South Carolina. And so now he's relying on a strong Super Tuesday to really make a difference. But this, you know, if he goes binary, I guess binary would be ones and zeros. But if he goes two, one, two, one, that's, that's a big deal. That would basically mean that Biden has the nomination, in my opinion. Quite simply, to make the case that I am being unfair to Joe, I would say that I am magnifying all of his flaws and hand-waving away all of his strengths. In an effort to not be wrong on the same kind of candidate Trump was, I am ignoring the fact that Trump was an upset for a reason and that people like Biden normally win and may very well win again. Politics! All right, it's the number one thing that people have reached out to me about over the last 48 hours, so we got to talk about it. Indeed, she returns. The star maker. Yeah, Hillary Clinton rolls in in a big cream white limousine, takes a look at an unwashed face and says, kid, come over here. And through the exhale of a slightly blue-tinged cigar smoke, she looks at that uncut gem and says, I'm going to make you a star, kid. <laughs> Hillary Clinton's angry. Hillary Clinton is an angry lady, man. She There is there is an anger in there. There is... A, a an element of not forgetting for Hillary Clinton that is that is unique. She uh whew, oh boy. And besides, like, how many projects does Hillary Clinton have? 
Hillary Clinton has so many projects. She put out a book that didn't tell us anything. And she put out a children's book, and I guess that's, you know, whatever that is. Each time she does a press round, the second time with the children's book, she did a press round with Chelsea where Chelsea just sat down. God knows if Chelsea said more than two words. I mean, I guess that's one side. If you are anti the Clinton family, there is this would be the time that Chelsea would want to stand up, right? Chelsea should be the one fighting these fights. Chelsea should be the one saying, hey, look, I I, I really think that the way that whatever happened with Bernie was was wrong, right? Or Chelsea should be the the the, the thing going forward. She should be the peacemaker. A generational change that maybe with Chelsea you can bury some of the ugliness of the past. The sins of the mother and the father do not have to transfer to the child. Let her walk forth in her own path. And if indeed she does want to move into a career in politics, then she can. Free of the shackles that her mother and father uh, both were bound to. A lot of because of their own making. You know, as long as she doesn't tell fun family stories about old Uncle Jeffrey or old Uncle Harvey, then she should be fine. But no, Hillary Clinton has yet another piece of memorabilia from that 2016 election. I mean, and I thought I was milking everything that I could with the Raise the Dead podcast. No, no, no. She's got a documentary coming out on Hulu. It's screening at Sundance and... In it, she had some harsh words for Bernie Sanders, according to The Hollywood Reporter, which saw the documentary. She says that nobody likes Bernie Sanders. He's a career politician. He's never gotten anything done. And he had the unmitigated gall to say that Hillary Clinton was unqualified. Well, when she was asked about those quotes from the documentary... I mean, one might think that the the way that she should go about it is like, hey, look, the documentary stands for itself. A lot of it came from points of pain. Uh, I'm not going to take back anything that I said there because I I certainly believed it when it came out of my mouth. I think that's the point. People want an unvarnished look into my life. But I'd prefer to let this primary season play out the way that it's going to play out. The voters are about to speak, and I would prefer that their voice be heard. That might be a way that I would go about it if I were around Hillary Clinton, but she did not choose that. She instead decided to confirm exactly everything that she said in that documentary and indeed take a step further. She implicates Bernie Sanders as either being a misogynist or being led by misogynists and being supported by misogynists. Indeed, systemic sexism is his tool. Now, so far, Bernie Sanders has held back. His main uh, focus over the last 48 hours has been Joe Biden. A surrogate called Joe Biden corrupt, and then the campaign proper went after Joe Biden's record on Social Security. They have, according to a political report, told all who are under the control of the Sanders campaign, do not engage, which I think is smart. Because if you are attacked for being a sexist and you come back and you attack the woman that called you a sexist, guess what? That attack will be read as you guessed it. Sexism. 
But that's not what you guys all wanted to talk to me about. No, you all wanted to talk to me about something very specific. Because like I said, Hillary Clinton is the star maker. She took the moribund campaign of Tulsi Gabbard and breathed new life into it. Might breathe some new life into her pocketbook too, Tulsi's that is, because Tulsi went out and filed a defamation suit today against Hillary Clinton for Hillary Clinton insinuating that she is a Russian asset. But as far as Bernie goes, the, the, the email that I got the most was, did Hillary Clinton just make Bernie Sanders president? To which I would say, man, do people love being mad at Hillary Clinton. Boy, do they love it. Now, I don't know if Bernie's going to respond. It seems as if they don't want to. But the longer a personal fight with Hillary Clinton goes, the better it tends to be for the candidate on the other side. Hillary Clinton, in that Hollywood Reporter interview, said when asked if she would support Bernie Sanders as the nominee, we haven't gotten there yet. Last night, she did a little mini walking back while still hissing rage. She said, oh, I thought everybody wanted my unvarnished opinions. Oh, jeez. Then went on to say, I will, of course, do everything I can to unseat the most dangerous president in American history, Donald Trump. Which was crazy, because I didn't know something. That when she wrote that, I didn't even know this was a feature on Twitter, that you could have your avatar slyly wink to the to the reader so to connote that she definitely didn't mean what she actually just wrote politics all right folks this is uh some real stuff here you did it you magnificent beautiful human beings you did it I began this year with some goals in mind. I began this year knowing that if I was going to truly cement myself as a political pundit, it would be in 2020. I think the time is right. I think I am good enough at it. And I think you, the audience, was ready to support it on a level that I had not fully grasped and I was very eager to discover and so the goal forever had been $1,500 an episode on the Patreon and that eventually became a week so I started doing two episodes blah 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 but $1,500 a week that had always been where it was and then we uh, we, we kind of got close to that I didn't really have a, a goal that you guys seem to want for that. So I decided to change it. I was going to set the goal at 1776 per episode. Now we've seen good growth throughout the last uh, few months as the election has begun. We've seen 20 bucks an episode, 30 bucks an episode, 40 bucks an episode. This is good, healthy growth. 
But I figured, you know, 1776, that was something where it would take a bit. It would take a bit to get there. Well, 2020 came around. We were at around 1,500. And as of Monday evening, I think, maybe Tuesday, we hit 1776. We're we're into the 1780s now. This is insane. It, it, It unlocks what I wanted it to unlock, which was my travel. So now my February into March is jam-packed. I am going to be in Iowa. I'm going to be in New Hampshire. I'm going to be in Nevada. I'm going to be in Las Vegas. I'm going to be in Columbia, South Carolina for that primary contest. Guys, I'm going to be everywhere you want me to be because you have paid for me to be there. Now, this has come at the largesse of a few people I'm no I'm not going to name names but there's a few people who have greatly inflated their pledges. And there ain't no rule against it if indeed you are balling like that that I am very happy to take your money. They seem unsustainable to me, but I appreciate it. The goal was the goal was the goal and I will honor it. And I've bought my tickets to New Hampshire, I've bought my tickets to South Carolina. So so there is no backsies even if we dip back below 1776. But I will say this, some folks paved the way. If you want to make sure that that 1776 number is indeed sustainable because we got travel past that. We've got very expensive trips to Milwaukee. We have very expensive trips uh, to Charlotte for the conventions. This is going to be a very expensive season, but you guys made it happen. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I always love to give back because the campaign undertaker giveth and the campaign undertaker taketh away, but mostly giveth here. Uh, uh, Of course, we like to give away memorabilia from the Iowa County Fair or the Iowa State Fair, rather. From the candidates as they drop out of the race, the prize this week was Cory Booker's hand sign, which has instructions and the date of the Iowa caucus coming up. And we have ourselves a winner. Trent S., congratulations. Go ahead and email in theyoungamerican at gmail.com with your address, and I will get that off to you A-S-A. One more self-serving plug. If you like this and you liked Raise the Dead, then here's what you're going to really like. Our free political newsletter at freepoliticalnewsletter.com. The best way that you can not only keep up to date with politics in a way that isn't going to make you rip your hair out, but you also get the greatest gift that the internet can possibly give you, takes and opinions that you can then literally take out into the world without attribution and seem smarter because of it. Also, we got the best, the best daily email section on the planet. It's my favorite thing to do every morning is to get all the emails that come in, respond to everybody who wrote in and put the best of them in the next day's email. Such a treat. 
So treat yourself. Free political newsletter at freepoliticalnewsletter.com. Politics! Oh, it's Iowa season, baby! We are uh, functionally about a week away from uh, the Iowa caucus. This is when polls move. This is when fortunes are made. We are previewing it now. All these other lames are going to preview it for you right before the vote. Uh Uh-uh. Wrong. False. We got to preview it a week before because this is when you really want to watch things. And our guest is Dave Peterson. He is the Whitaker Lindgren Faculty Fellow in Political Science at Iowa State University. You can find him on Twitter, Dave Amp, D-A-V-E-A-M-P. And he joins us. Welcome to the show, Dave. Hey, thanks for having me on the show. All right. Iowa. Very excited for Iowa. I'm going to be in Iowa covering uh, uh, the caucus in, in, in not but a week's time. So this is this is kind of my, my, my prep here. Let's let's begin at the beginning. Where does the Iowa caucus start? Uh, where does this round or where did it start? Where did it start? The general, the, the, the big the big oh, meta. Yeah. Where, where does Iowa become Iowa? Iowa becomes Iowa in 1976. So after the chaos of 1968, which is still the craziest election in American history, uh, the, the, the Democrats and Republicans figure out that the nominating system is an absolute mess. And we have 72, but that was boring. But in 1976, Jimmy Carter, the then little-known governor from Georgia, figures out that if he can win the first race, win the first contest of the 1976 uh, run for the nomination, he's going to get a ton of attention for it. So he spends an incredible amount of time running in Iowa, campaigning in Iowa, getting to know Iowans, and he ends up being the candidate who gets the most support in the Iowa caucus, which, as they thought would happen, leads to incredible amounts of national press, because who is this guy, right? He's the governor of Georgia. Why is he winning Iowa? Well, why is he getting more support than any other candidate? Uncommitted, actually, won in Iowa in 1970. But Jimmy Carter gets declared the winner, and from that, right, leads to his uh, uh, runaway win in in the Democratic nomination fight of '76. You know, politics uh, people tend to learn from winners, and so when they saw Jimmy Carter do well, every campaign after that 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 has uh, has a brain on its in its head has said, "All right, we got to do well in Iowa. That's how we start our campaign. That's how we're successful." So just for folks who are are kind of wondering why Iowa in in so many ways is sort of the perfect launching point. Can you describe real quick the just the the geographical makeup of Iowa the state and why it tends to be uh, uh, just kind of a, a a perfect place for upstart candidates that that want to put all their money in and and see if they can recreate Carter's success? Yeah, sure. I mean, Iowa is uh, it's it's a pretty rural state. It's a pretty small state. It has a couple of media markets, but none of which are that expensive to run uh, in, right? To run ads in, and so it ends up being this place where you have to be on the ground. You have to be in the state, going county to county, showing up at uh, county fairs, showing up at the state fair um, to get to know people. It's uh, also you know, uh, uh, a politically divided state. We're, we're fairly moderate. Um, I like to say that the eastern half of the state is politically like Illinois, and the western half of the state is politically like Kansas. Uh, and so it's there is a decent amount of variety uh, within the state and within the party, and so you've got to be able to appeal pretty broadly. I mean, the other thing is that we've been doing this for, what, 50, almost 50 years now we've been first in the nation. And so Iowans, Show up at stuff. I mean, I I yeah. went uh, 
I've got selfies with just about every candidate because um, I kept showing up for events and they kept taking pictures. But I was stunned. One of the first ones I went to was a, an event for Tim Ryan, who I like. Um, but it was a beautiful summer Saturday afternoon. Um, one of those only kind of summer days you get in the Midwest. And I was at the local county library to see Tim Ryan, who <laughs> I knew a little bit about, but not a whole lot. There was like 75 people in the room. Yeah. Um, you know, I expected there to be four, um, but it was, you know, here's this little known candidate, but everyone in town sort of says, all right, I got to meet him. I got to meet anyone running for president, and they've got to prove to me that they've got what it takes. Tim, Tim Ryan was not the greatest example of proving to me that he's got what it takes, but, yeah. uh, you know, that, you know, people show up for stuff, and, and so it becomes possible to meet a lot of Iowans and to meet a large proportion of the state and to be able to effectively build a campaign in that way. All right. So uh, I like to joke on this podcast because, as you mentioned, the, the, the populace of Iowa is very politically dialed in. The, the role of yep. a caucus goer is taken very seriously. And I, I like to kid that, that the candidate that tends to win is the one that memorizes the most birthdays of the caucus goers' <laughs> cats. Uh, th- this is, I mean, just, just describe that level of seriousness and, and passion from the Iowa voter or caucus yeah, goer rather. Right. Yeah. Caucus goer, not voter. That's really yeah. important. Yeah. Um, New Hampshire will get in trouble with us if we, yes. if we call it voters. <laughs> uh, uh, it's, it's, you know, there's, there's a lot of attention to, to go into these things, right? So I'm a political scientist. Uh, people in town know I'm a political scientist, so maybe they're a little, a little more willing to talk to me about it. But, you know, I go into local stores that I'm a regular at, and they'll ask me questions about it, right? So did you see Mayor Pete when he was here last week? You know, which candidates have you seen? And I'll ask them because I'm, you know, sort of curious because it's partially my job to be curious about what people are thinking. Um, and so there's a lot of attention to this stuff. Um, we spend, you know, I don't think you're too far off on the ability to, to memorize birthdays. Uh, um, you know, it's one of the things that makes it different here is that because we are so uh, attentive, because we show up, um, the way you're successful is by building an organization, by building a machine, by honing your message, by giving your speech a dozen times a day and not sounding bored after the third time, um, by remembering the people when you've met them before. The most amazing person I saw this entire race was actually Kamala Harris. I don't know how she did it, but I was at a party fundraiser that, uh, you know, big, big party fundraiser where she was one of the keynote people. And I watched her walk into the room. And uh, every head turned because they all wanted to meet her. Uh, Castro was there and Hickenlooper was there as well. But everybody cared about Harris. And I watched her walk up. You know, you know, you'd think that there would be some staff person who'd be whispering in the ear. This is the you got to go talk to this person. You got to go. Yeah. Harris knew by face every major party player in the room. Nobody was whispering to her, but she would go person to person. She would spot up. She'd finish her conversation, stand up, spot the next person she needed to talk to, go over, sit down next to them, and just engage in ways that I've never seen another politician do. She didn't do enough of that, which is why she ended up not, you know, getting very far. But that ability to work the room was was amazing. So let's describe for folks just so people don't think that I'm making this up. This is another thing that I always say about that. You have to understand about Iowa. And this is another reason why I I think big movement candidates, passionate candidates do well in Iowa because specifically on the democratic side, please describe for everybody 
the caucus process because it is certainly involved. I've referred to it as hours of hell, uh, at least that people have described it to me that have gone through it. But 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 please, please just just lay it out there for for what what that process is. You know, if hell is other people, you're not too far off on that. <laughs> uh, you know, you. So I, I was fortunate enough to ha- to that that one of the campaigns let me sit in on uh, their precinct precinct captain training. Okay. So I've seen what they're doing for training people who are going to be the sort of volunteers within these precincts. So we show up. Uh, there's a lot of random party business, which is always really boring, um, and everyone just sort of wants to get through it because that's not why we're there. But we show up. Um, the if you're in line by 7 p.m., you get in the door. And if you're not in line by 7 p.m., you don't get in the door. But you have to go through the registration. It's, and it's um, if you're not a registered Democrat in this cycle, you're right, you can register on site. Um, it takes forever. Uh, last time the registration took at least an extra half an hour. Um, so you're standing in the room, mulling around, not a lot of chairs, hanging out with your neighbors. I like my neighbors, so that was a good thing for me. But if you don't yeah. like your neighbors, oh, that's a problem. Um, and then eventually – the the person who's in charge says, all right, this is how many people we have in the room. For a candidate to be viable, you have to get 15%, and here's what that number is, right? So yeah. you have to get 27 people to be viable. Now, I'm going to start a clock, and in half an hour, we're going to have every camp, we're going to count every campaign to figure out how many people are in the room for that campaign. So every campaign is set up a little space with signs and all that stuff, and they're trying to draw everyone in to hang out with them and and, and caucus for them. And that that so I, 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 I just want to highlight yeah. that real quick because that's this yeah. is where we start to get into a a political ritual I, unlike any other because that is where at least to judge just by the social media videos that come out yep that's where things start to get dicey because let's say you really believe in Andrew Yang and this is definitely going to happen yep. where there's a lot of very passionate Andrew Yang supporters but he might have a challenge getting to viability you are now going to see an open market for cajoling. Oh, we haven't got to that. We haven't got okay. to the open market yet. Right? Okay, We're sorry. Yes. So this, this is, yeah, point, if, right? you, if you're just thinking, if you're drifting, if you're wafting yeah. over to the Yang corner, then there might be some some cat calls from the other the other right. factions. Exactly, right? So at the end of half an hour, we count up. And if you, you know, if we needed 27 people and you've got 27 or more in your little space, great, you're viable. And that candidate is going to get delegates. The best part of the, what the rule change they made this year is that if you're in that group and your candidate, right, so if you're there for Michael Bennett and Michael Bennett somehow gets 27 people in that room and is enough to be viable, you can turn in your caucus card and you can go home. And that's it. And you're, vo- and you're done, yeah. right, because, because Bennett was viable in that situation. You don't have to, but you can. So if you've got a babysitter, because, again, this is starting at 7 o'clock at night and it's lasting a couple hours. If you've got a babysitter, if you're old like me and go to bed early, you can leave. If you're not viable, if you're below that 15%, you count because they're going to announce how how much support everybody got in the first round. But you don't count for delegates, which is really what really matters, what is the final total that they'll announce. Then we have the realignment. So the caucus chair announces, 
here are the numbers, or the yeah, the caucus chair announces here are the numbers. You know, Bernie got this number, Warren got this number. Uh, these candidates are viable. Nobody else is viable. We are now going to start the realignment, ah. and that's when it's the meat market. Yes. Right? That's when the all right, you know, Klobuchar, you were way below viability. All right. Come on over here, you know. Remember when I shoveled your sidewalk during the blizzard last week? Come on over here. And that's when everyone disperses to the second round and to the new round of candidates. This the two other the two other changes we've made this year, which yeah. are important. Go ahead. Is there's only one round of realignment. In the past they've done this over and over and over again. This time two one realignment, two rounds of aligning, and then we're done. The other thing that hasn't been talked about enough is you can be uncommitted. So you can show up and say, I don't know who I want. I am uncommitted. If 15% of the people are uncommitted, you are locked into uncommitted. Wow. Okay. Uncommitted gets whatever the pledge delegate number is then. And it goes all the way to the national convention, right? We're, we're delegate equivalents, you know, so we're a tenth of a delegate or whatever it happens to be from your precinct. That's going to continue all the way to the delegate allocation to the national convention. So in theory, there could be one person from Iowa who shows up in Milwaukee completely uncommitted to any candidate. <laughs> theoretically, theoretically. Although, the, uh, the, yeah. Well, all right, Unlikely. Here. So, so, so let's actually get get to that now because uh, uh, hopefully people have understood what that that process is, and it does bear mentioning. This is only on the Democratic side. The, the Republican yeah. side is yeah. much more traditional. You walk in, you 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 make your decision, and you walk out, right? You got to listen to some speeches too, but otherwise, yeah, it's pretty much straightforward. Pretty, but yeah. even that the. Even at the Republicans, they don't. It's not a. It's not a primary, so there's no ballots. So the counting of the ballots, the counting of the choices, can be messed up. This was trouble in the. Uh, what was it? Uh, Twelve. Two thousand twelve. Yeah. 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 Where it was like it was somebody somebody's trunk had had, had, had some counting left to do. And Rick Santorum, three weeks later, wound up being declared the winner, which I'm sure he was thrilled by. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, uh, All right. So there are 41 pledge delegates set to be awarded this year from the state of Iowa. The Democratic Party, which has had a very interesting way of deciding who gets on debate stages over the last uh, several months, has announced that for their New Hampshire debate, now no longer will Iowa polls be counted as a qualifying, but if you are to earn a single pledge delegate, you will make your way onto that stage. And at first blush, it seems to be something that would reward uh, maybe more fringe candidates. We're, we're talking more about the Klobuchars and Yangs and Styers of the world to get onto yep. the stage. However, when I went and looked back at how pledge delegates were awarded, there doesn't seem to be a lot of the one or two pledge delegates. They tend to pool yep. at the top. So is this in any way really a reward for the fringe candidates that might get some support? I mean, the only uh, the only way it really works is um, how geographically concentrated their support is, right? So, you know, one of the things that became that 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 should be clear, that hopefully is clear, is that vote supporters, you know, too many surplus supporters in one precinct don't spill over to the other, right? So, if I get um, 
you know, if I if I clean house in this precinct, that may not actually matter that much for uh, a delegate allocation, right? Okay. Or for for um, uh, uh, delegate equivalents. Um, and you're much better off having a sort of equal dispersion across the entire state, right? If you're at 15 percent in every precinct, you're going to do incredibly well, yeah. right, across the state. Much better than if you're at 10 percent in half the districts and 20 percent in half the districts, because you're shut out in half of them. And then, you know, if if this precinct has four delegates or four delegate equivalents to get us decided, right, you basically anything from 15 to like 30 gets one, 30 to 45 or whatever the number act, right? I, I, the numbers are a little tricky, right? Gets a second. So if you're at 25 and you're not to the threshold for two delegates, it's the same as if you had 15 for the delegate equivalents that you get, right? So yeah. you either need to do, you know, clean house in a really concentrated place enough to be able to get to that one or have this really dispersed, spread out support. Um, you know, from the polling stuff I've seen, because we've been doing some polling, and when we break it down by, say, congressional district, which is the smallest level we can go, yeah. right, Buttigieg is above 15% in all four of the congressional districts. Uh. He's the only one who he's the only one who's above 15 in all four congressional districts, right? Biden does incredibly well in the fourth. That's my district. That's Steve King's district, which is the northwest corner, which is pretty conservative. Yeah. Um, and much less well elsewhere. Um, you know, and so Buttigieg might, you know, if I'm reading the, you know, from the people I've been talking to and the, and the data I've looked at, right? Buttigieg might be pretty well positioned to have this widespread, get some delegate equivalents everywhere, better than some of the other candidates are. Gotcha. And that and, and, is that that is the surefire way to pull in the most delegates. Yeah. Yep. But, you know, someone like Yang or Steyer or Gabbard, um, you know, they're they may be at, you know, 10 percent. You know, they might get 15 percent here or there, but it's not quite going to be enough to add up to a whole delegate. Because, um, again, we're going to announce these delegate equivalents yeah. um, on, on caucus night. And if you don't get to a whole one, I don't think you qualify. I don't think there's rounding involved in this. I think you have to get to a whole delegate equivalent to get to the for it to qualify for the debate. Um, and that's that's tricky because, again, you have to do this across enough of these precincts. I mean, I'm guessing uh, for the number of math hats on campus, I'm guessing Yang is going to do pretty well around here. Yeah. Um, but I don't think he's going to do quite as well in the – places that are where the where the voters are going to be older and uh, more sort of traditional Democrats. But there's so so there is is there a version of this where you can snag a single delegate or is the system just designed to pool them at, at the, the most consistent players? No, I think you can. I mean, I think. Right. You, but you have to do quite well. In, a, in enough large places. Gotcha. Um, gotcha. And, I, and the math is complicated enough where I'm just not sure how it works. Um, <laughs> and uh, look, but if, yeah, you, I mean, if, you, if, right. if, if you, if you, if you, if one, I think you can, but it's, it's tricky. Yeah. I mean, if you don't know problem. how it works, I don't know if anyone does. <laughs> I mean, right. no, I mean I, you know, I guess if, you know, the one way to think about it might be, you know, if you look at these candidates who are all at 5%. Yeah. The ones who are really localized probably have a better shot than the ones who are, you know, all spread out, right? Gotcha. So if Yang does really well in college towns or, you know, that might be able to get him to that one delegate where somebody like, um, 
you know, uh, uh, Booker was at the same point, even though he's out now, right? Booker and Yang were pretty close in our poll, um, right? Book, but Booker was support was dispersed across the state, so there was no way he was getting to a delegate because he just wasn't going to be that. He wasn't going to be viable basically anywhere. Where I think Yang is going to be viable in a handful of places. Gabbard might be uh, viable in a handful of places. Um, I'm not sure it's going to be enough to get to that one delegate, but it's better than, you know. I'd rather be a, a really concentrated 5%. You're going to be more likely to get it than a really dispersed 8%. Uh, this is uh, uh, fascinating because that, that to me is the only real question. I mean, beyond obviously who wins and, and where we go right. from there, the, the idea that a specifically, and obviously Yang would be the youth, right? It would be a college yep. movement. It, could he peel off one delegate is just a fascinating question. Let, let, let's let's yeah, switch gears yeah. a little bit here because I want to go back to the campaigning. Between now oh, yeah. and the caucus, we are going to see a tremendous amount of attention and pressure. However, obviously the other big story that is happening right now is impeachment. It has taken off the road at least for these nine to five hours where the senators – Klobuchar, Warren, and Sanders need to be in Washington, D.C., valuable time that they would otherwise be very much pounding the pavement in Iowa in this crucial final week. In your opinion, how much of a detriment is it to their campaign? Um, a, you're forgetting Bennett. Bennett, Bennett has to be in D.C. Sorry, too. sorry. Um, uh, but I, I do think it matters. Right? I think one of the things that um, is traditionally true about Iowa is that um, – there's a, a lot of late movement in the polls, right? Yeah. It, polling Iowa's, the polling the Iowa caucuses are tricky because there's usually some some late movement that occurs, um, and I think that's going to be the there's the potential for that this time as well. I mean, there's um, we're starting to see some divisions, right? We're starting to see some some animosity between at least some of the campaigns, if not some of the supporters. Yeah. But I think most Democrats in this state like. A lot of these candidates. They may not like all. Nobody may like all of them. Sure. Um, but I think they like a lot of them. And so when they're trying to make the last minute decision, you know, maybe they've been when a pollster calls or whatever, they've been like, oh, yeah, no, I'll, I guess right now I'm backing Warren. But they're not necessarily locked in and they're still thinking about it and they're still waiting. Um, and I think for I mean, part of it is, you know, for these Democrats, the stakes are really high. Um, you know, there's been a lot of reporting about Iowans don't feel a lot of pressure to not make the wrong choice given uh, they don't want to help Trump, right? They don't want to nominate someone who, who's, who Trump is going to beat. And I think that's real. I think a lot of people um, are really concerned about that, and they they vacillate between who's the most likely to win in November. So with all that said, that yeah. would seem to think that somebody who is a bit of a steady Eddie candidate and yep. will be able to campaign throughout the daytime hours in Iowa like Joe Biden would seem to benefit yep. or or right, even Pete Buttigieg. Yeah. yeah, yeah, no, I definitely think it's the case that, that Biden and Buttigieg are going to benefit from this. Um, particularly, you know, when we didn't know the rules of the Senate, you know, you could have imagined a moment where one of the senators could make a dramatic speech or something to sort of capture attention. But if all they can do is sit there quietly and drink their milk, uh, it's not going <laughs> to let them, you know, they're not going to have that, that moment to be able to do anything to sort of galvanize attention. Um, and I think that's, that's tough for them because they do need to, um, I think Warren and Klobuchar in particular need to sort of seal the deal. The Bernie people, 
they're diehard. Yes. Um, you know, we asked in our polls, we asked people who they supported in 16. And basically, the, if you're supporting Bernie now, you supported him in, in October, you supported him in September, you supported him in 2016. Um, and, and those people aren't going anywhere. They're going to show up and they're going to caucus for Bernie. If you didn't support Bernie in 2016, you're not supporting him now. Um, and so, you know, I don't know how much I don't know how much his campaign would be able to grab those last minute undecided, but he certainly isn't going to lose anybody by not being here where Warren and Colbert, the support might be a little softer. And, and again, to remind everybody, this is not a private process. This is a public no. process where passion matters a lot. And therefore, Bernie is going to have that advantage with the, the, the religious fervor for which that gathers around him. Right. Yes, absolutely. Uh, all right. Let's focus on kind of the the larger idea of Iowa, because on the on the Republican side, there tends to be a rewarding of uh, candidates that really court the evangelical vote of uh, Huckabee uh, in recent times, Huckabee. Yep. Uh, Santorum, as you mentioned, who was the delayed winner. Cruz beat Trump uh, to begin the 2016 uh, uh, campaign. On the Democratic side, it seems to be far more predictive. The, the winners in Iowa tend to win the nomination. Why do you think that is? Um, I think part of it is uh, the the structure for I mean a little bit is the divisions within the parties and some of it is the sort of structure for how you have to run so I mean the divisions within the Republican Party I think are much starker in Iowa so there is a chunk of the party that is the sort of Christian conservative um, you know dating back to Pat Robertson in 1988 when he finished second beating George H.W. Bush um, you know that's been a key part there's a libertarian slice that Ron Paul had for a couple of cycles um, you know he was all always seemed to be about 20% in, our, in the polling we did then. And then there's the, I guess you'd call them country club Republicans, um, which our, our former governor, Terry Branstad, was was part of. And and they're roughly equal sizes. The libertarian side might be a little smaller. But, it, it you know, you, you go to that group, you win that group, and then you sort of grab a little bit at the margins. That's how you win the Republican caucus here. Um, for the Democrats, those, those coalitions aren't as, as strong. They're not as stark. Um, it's a, you know, it, it's it's a much more heterogeneous party. It's not as um, uh, uh, clear cut cycle after cycle where the lanes are in this state uh, for the Democrats as it is for the Republicans, and so you have to win by really building an organization. Um, and I think part of it might be the part of the reason why it's more predictive on the Democratic side is it's a training ground for these candidates. Mm. So the ones who build that campaign, build that organization, figure out how to hone their message. Those are skills, and then those are people, because you can bring those campaign volunteers or campaign staff with you, that can help you a lot more in later states, right? So you learn on the ground in Iowa by spending 12, 16 months here, and then when Iowa's done, you pick up and you move, well, the New Hampshire staff's done. You know, then you move to South Carolina, and then you move to wherever, and it just trains people better. And there's just, I think, something about the Democratic Party in this state that requires that kind of on-the-ground training more. That's fascinating. So, so this is just the boot camp, and and maybe that is part yeah. of it to to build to build the army that wins this very weird particular war. You are going to develop skills that will be able to roll out as you go further and bigger. Yeah, and part of the reason why you win Iowa is you've got a better team, and yeah. so that better team helps you win other states. 
Now, one final thing uh, uh, yeah. that, that I got to ask you, because it is something that we get every once in a while, and, and particularly when we are in the more nascent navel-gazing metaphase of the primaries, we, we get these kinds of questions of why Iowa? Why, why New Hampshire? Why do all these states that are whiter than the average Democratic populace that are so entrenched, why do they get to have this outsized influence? Maybe we should rotate which state it is. Uh, are you a, a, a Iowa protectionist? And, and, and uh, uh, if so, why? Uh, well, I am a, an employee of the state of Iowa, so I think I legally have to say yes. <laughs> um, uh, no, I mean, it's, it's, I mean, it's, we're first because of inertia. I mean, yeah. right, the sort of holdover from our our Byzantine system back in 1976 with Jimmy Carter and the fact that we've always been first um, is part of the reason why we've stayed first. And, it, and it's just – it's hard to switch systems. Um, you know, New Hampshire's first is the first primary because their state constitution requires it, right? So they're legally obligated to jump in front of anybody else. <laughs> yes. So even if the DNC tried to change it, their state law makes them go first. Um, yeah. Uh, but us, we don't have the same rule. Um, but you know, it's it's. Would we go for, if I were to sit down and design a system, and I didn't live in Iowa, we would not be first, right? I mean, or we wouldn't necessarily be first, or we wouldn't be first every time. But that's not what we're, we've got, right? We're not starting from scratch. We're starting from where we were four years ago, um, and it's a hard thing to change. How do you make a decision? How do you make a rule? And Iowa and New Hampshire have a strong influence, a strong interest in making sure they go first, and it's hard to build a coalition of other states to jump us, right? So yeah. you know, you know, in the past was an 08, it was Florida and Florida, Michigan Florida tried to, tried jump to up, do it, and they lost yeah. all, they lost their delegates in part as a result. Um, it's you know, it's it's other states that have tried it in the past have been have been penalized for it, um, and it's hard to make that change. It's also you know. It depends upon who wins. So the Republicans aren't talking about it at all because there's not really a contest, right? So if the yeah. Democrats win in 2020, Democrats aren't going to think about it again for eight years. Um, you know, and so it's harder to sort of figure out how to make these shifts. You also have the fact that the two parties tend to go in roughly go in the same order, right? They tend to go together. You know, the Iowa caucuses. There is a Republican caucus going on um, on the same night. So it's not just the Democrats who get to make the decision. The Republicans have to make the decision as well, and, and they can't compromise on anything. Um, so that it's, it's difficult to sort of come up with a strategy that gets both parties to agree to reshuffle 50 different races yeah. in the same order at the same time. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's, I've had a few people email me, and, and that's uh, my, my answer has always been, I think that you could probably get a consensus amongst other states and maybe even – party representatives that Iowa shouldn't be first, I think you're going to get 49 different answers on who should be first. Yeah, <laughs> like, and I that's think exactly the problem, right? Uh, you'll get, you know, I, I, yeah, yeah, no, exactly right. I think New Hampshire's got our back, but otherwise, yeah, nobody else is, is going to agree I think, that. Yeah, there is a very copacetic relationship between Iowa and New Hampshire, and I'll tell you what, if you are, and, and I, would, I would stand up for Iowa in that, like, hey, look, when we stop predicting the president, then maybe come and check the credentials. But it seems like, at least on the Democratic side, this has been a pretty good indicator of who actually is viable for the country. So uh, and, and, and to sound like a homer for just a minute, right? I mean, 
there's not a lot of states that that would I, I do think there was a learning process to figuring out the responsibility of going first. Yeah. To showing up at events, to meeting candidates, to pushing candidates, to be this actively engaged in politics. Not even just you know the craziness of the caucus night, but the build up and the lead in that that I think is a good thing for the for the Democratic Party, but I also think it's sort of a good thing just in general that we push our candidates to be better at their job. Um, and you know, if another state went first, if it was a, a a big state, if it was an expensive state, money's going to matter a whole hell of a lot yeah. more. And I don't think people really want that. But beyond that, even if you picked a you know, even if we sort of randomly chose states. There's no guarantee that that state is – that those voters are going to take it that, as seriously, that they're not going to show up in April, uh, that they're not going to show up to these, these events from candidates they've never heard of. And I think there's something lost if that's the system we switch to. Yeah, and we would lose the Iowa State Fair, which is always hilarious. Well, yeah. Like, nah, I can't do it. I can't give it up. I'm here for <laughs> Iowa. I'm so pumped to get to Des Moines. I'm so pumped to uh, uh, be there for the caucus. Uh, thank you, thank you, thank you so much. This was uh, exactly what I was looking for. Dave Peterson is the Whitaker Lindgren Faculty Fellow of uh, Political Science at Iowa State University. You can find him on Twitter, D-A-V-E-A-M-P. And uh, uh, Dave, let me ask you uh, right here, uh, 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 would you come back on with us so you can uh, help us break down the results after the caucus? Happy to, that'd be great. All right. Well, thank you so much for making uh, making time for us today. Yep. Talk to you later. Politics. Let's go ahead and get into the mailbag. You can go ahead and send me an email, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. Bo writes, looks like the Hill Dogs trying to make another king. My Hill Dogs are still out there, right? Oh, oh, oh. Honestly, though, does this interview really do anything to help or hurt anyone? The Clintons aren't exactly known for being magnanimous in defeat, and this comes across more so as sour grapes over Bernie taking the wind out of her sails four years ago. Does Hillary saying what she says about Bernie really affect the primaries? Uh, you dare doubt? Bo from Austin, Texas. You dare doubt the power of the star maker? She reinvigorated Tulsi Gabbard for like three months. Tulsi Gabbard was D-O-A. Gets into a fight with Hillary, all of a sudden she's back on the debate stage. In all seriousness, I don't know exactly how much this affects anything right now. Where I would be more mindful is whether or not this is a harbinger. Is Hillary Clinton indeed just the silver surfer Herald for the Galactus that is the Stop Bernie campaign. The Never Bernie campaign. Because look, Democrats, and I mean people who are in the Democratic Party, don't like him. He ain't one of them. He may or may not win their nomination, and I think they're going to be PO'd about it. So, is this more of a isolated idea or is part of this that we're going to turn up the heat as far as we can if we are the Democratic Party on vile misogynist Bernie Sanders to ensure that 
A, he hopefully is not the nominee, and if he is the nominee, that he is never president. That's the bigger question. Furry Viking Kalamazoo says, any plans to discuss the importance of the census? I admit that there's a lot that I don't know, and I'd love to hear your take on this, why it matters while I do my own research. Thanks, Jerbs. No, I, I don't really plan on doing a lot about the census. Uh, we're not really wanting for news these days, but, you know, maybe some other time. Eric writes, Minnesotan here, confirming the animosity between Midwestern states. There's one thing that we can all agree on, though. F North Dakota. We got a lot of Minnesotans writing in, uh, 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 PO'd about Iowans and other Midwestern neighbors. Josh writes, responding to the guy who said us Midwesterners hate each other. It's true. As a Minnesotan, I really don't have anything against Iowans, but I hate people from Wisconsin. Because their cheeseheads and the Packers suck. Clay writes, hey, Justin, I'm an Iowan. And some of my best friends are Minnesotans, but they are an Iowans. Iowa State University, my alma mater, has many students from Minnesota. However, whenever we watch a football game featuring Minnesota, invariably we all cheer against them. They're not in our conference. Who cares, right? Well, our football stadium in Iowa State is named after our first black football player, second to ever play college ball. That is Jack Trice, he points out. Jack Trice was targeted and killed on field by the Minnesota team in 1923. So, yeah, we can hold a grudge. Justin writes, as a North Carolinian, I would, uh, it would be easier to like South Carolina if they didn't suck so much. Except for Charleston, that's a pretty cool town. And Jaden writes, I think Mike Bloomberg is attempting to force a brokered convention and he is likely to do so. Thoughts? That's not actually what he wrote. He, he wrote me a, a full novel. He's a 20-year-old young lad, Jaden is, and he wrote me a novel. I don't even know how you do this in Gmail. It, it appeared fully formed in a rich leather-bound cover. Parchment paper weathered through the ages. <laughs> no, he wrote a really long email, and, and it basically broke down like this. Number one, that I'm underestimating the idea that we could have the, uh, a brokered convention. Number two, that Mike Bloomberg is part of the reason why we would have a brokered convention and uh, that I am underestimating exactly how shifted our politics are because I am dealing, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm underestimating how much ad targeting basically matters. That was, that was his point. And that I should look to Brexit and Boris Johnson and the Italian election to understand it better. So let's start with the central premise. Is a Am I understating the possibility that there will be a contested convention? And I would say to that, no. But here's my thinking on it. I am betting 
part of my betting strategy in politics is that I think it's easier to bet against the things that won't happen. You tend to look a lot smarter as a pundit if you are actively calling out that things that people are excited for will not happen or are less likely because most things don't. So when I bet against a, a contested convention, I'm effectively using the following priors. Number one, we ain't had one in a very, very, very long time. So whether or not I fully understand exactly why that is, or I'm correct on the alchemy of why I believe that is, of which percentages may vary, I would say the primary system is long enough and robust enough that it tends to knock people out. There is a desire by the party to not sacrifice three days of coronation, including three or four sometimes nights of prime time, all network coverage where you can get exactly your messaging out. They would rather do that for one candidate than to have there be a fight live on television and have it turned into, since we haven't seen it in a long time, in decades and decades, effectively a political version of Jerry Springer. And that the media doesn't like it. We like, the media likes you to win your hard-fought battle on the field. And you are more likely to see, because we have so many primaries, and there's not really a lot of options in not playing in the primaries, that we will frame it in a way that people are losing. Like, for example, Mike Bloomberg. Mike Bloomberg is not going to effectively compete in any of the first four primaries. Now, in the past, specifically, in, and Jaden, thank you so much for listening to Raise the Dead, but he brings up Raise the Dead and points out that, you know, there were hints of a possible contested convention in 1960. But what happened in 1960 is that you were able to skip primaries. Kennedy skipped a bunch of primaries, and, and, and they weren't looked at as losses for him, even though other people won. I don't think that's possible now. I think that as we go forward, the momentum that is generated from Iowa to New Hampshire to Nevada to South Carolina will be something that you can't buy. No matter how many ads he runs, no matter how many uh, uh, Facebook likes he generates, no matter how many meatballs his face appears in, nothing will be able to overtake the earned momentum you get from winning primaries. Now, there is one chance, and that is if Mike Bloomberg is effectively a more prepared version of what Mitt Romney could have been in 2016. Remember this clip? There's plenty of evidence that Mr. Trump is a con man, a fake. Mr. Trump has changed his positions, not just over the years, but over the course of the campaign. 
and on the Ku Klux Klan daily for three days in a row. That speech was on March 3rd. So, on our calendar, that will be after the first four, after Super Tuesday, after Florida. We will be into the killing fields, as it were. You know, we're going to be straining against money problems for a lot of these campaigns. The reality of who will be running away with it will be all but certain. But let's imagine at that point that you've got two, maybe three people that have a shot, and one of them is Bloomberg. He punches above his weight on Super Tuesday. He does well enough in Florida, maybe even wins Florida, right? And so now you are marching into this, like, winning time moment with somebody that has a little bit of momentum that, unlike Mitt Romney, is actually going to play the game. Because remember, that speech, people thought, like, oh, okay, well, this is a prelude to Mitt endorsing Ted Cruz or endorsing Kasich, endorsing Marco Rubio, endorsing somebody, right? No, Mitt just kind of wanted to talk some wild sass and, and just sort of move on. But imagine he was Michael Bloomberg. At that point, the never Berniers, the never burners, would have an opportunity to lash themselves to one final hope. But, and here's another reason why I think a brokered convention is unlikely. Statistically, you can find a mathematical way to say that it's feasible, but in reality, I don't think so for this reason. This is, at least in the eyes of normalcy, and boy, howdy, does politics love normalcy, would effectively be kind of killing your party. I mean, Trump effectively subjugated the Republican Party to his will. And we got stories about how this was the end of the Republican Party. Imagine what would happen if we went to a brokered convention. Imagine the wailing and gnashing of teeth. To put it in meme format, one does not simply walk into a brokered convention. This would have to be a religious war. And yes, one is possible. But I would say unlikely. Politics! And that will wrap us up for today. I would like to thank our sterling, our amazing, our incomparable $10 tier, Dennis, Michael, Jonathan, Pettit, Olan, and Angela... Christopher, Nick, Frozen, Jim, DL, Lindsay, Stephen, Andrew, Squids, Mixtape, Jamie, Adam, D Laser, Andy, Paul, Mike, and Brad. As you can tell, we are expanding. If you want to join the ranks, head on over to takepoliticsseriously.com. That's where you can support the show on all levels. If you want to send me an email, again, it is theyoungamerican at gmail.com. You can buy my political card game. You like debates? You like this show? You're going to love The Contender, the game of presidential debate. Find it on Amazon. You can also find me on social media at Justin R. Young, any and everywhere that there is a social media. That's where I am, Justin R. Young. 
All right. Until Friday, folks, this is your old pal Justin Robert Young saying uh, politics has three names. And I heard one show that was talking about politics. I saw a class in college that was talking about politics. And I saw a tweet thread that discussed politics. But this show, folks, this show right here is the only one that has the guts to talk about all Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>